Hi, I'm Melissa Ritz, and this is Served, a podcast about female military veterans and their experiences in and out of uniform. Today, we're joined by Army veteran Satinder Kaur. She's allowing me to call her Sati. Sati, <laughs> welcome to the podcast. Thanks for being here. Hi, Melissa. I'm so excited to be on here. I'm excited to have you all the way from Washington. Bellingham, Washington. Yeah. (laughs) So tell us how you ended up in Washington. So I was born in India and um, the first 10 years of my life were split between India and Germany. And then we moved to the U.S. in 1995. I was 12, almost 12 at that time. And um, first we moved to Seattle. And then from there, we moved to Bellingham because my parents loved this town and they had some friends here and they're still here. You know, my parents have been here for forever. And I ended up leaving here in 2007. I moved back to L.A. I moved to L.A. to go to USC. And that has become my home. So you immigrate to America when you're 12 years old. What grade was that? I did fifth grade in India and I was supposed to do sixth grade here, but I did the little test, the placement test, and they ended up placing me in seventh grade. So I skipped one grade. (laughs) Of course you did. I was smart. (laughs) So you were thrown right into this junior high experience in America with new references and pop culture and clothes and all that. It was brutal. (laughs) Well, yeah, it's brutal enough without having to move from another country. So you start seventh grade and did you stay with that same group of people up through high school? No. So seventh grade I did in Shoreline, um, which is a town by Seattle. Mm -hmm. And so after I finished that, then we moved to Bellingham, Washington. So then eighth grade, I started here. And the difference was, you know, Seattle is a much more diverse urban community. Um, Bellingham is a very, at that time especially, it was very rural, very conservative, very white. It was a culture shock to a level that I hadn't experienced prior. You know, when I was in Seattle, it wasn't the same. So eighth grade was hell for me. Like I hated my life during eighth grade. <laughs> and then things got better. Then the people who um, who were my bullies, who were mean to me, those people, you know, they changed because they got to know me over time. And mm-hmm. I was no longer the person to pick on. <laughs> so you graduate from high school and was the conversation in your family to go right to college? So I actually, so Washington State has this really cool program called Running Start, where while you're in high school, you can take college credits at the community college. So I I started doing that. And so I had a few credits under my belt. I definitely wanted to go to college because I saw that as the only way for me to really have an independent life. But I wanted to study film and my parents really did not support that, you know, as most most families would not support their kids pursuing the arts Mm -hmm. for all the reasons of, you know, you don't really have a secure future. It's so hard to make it in the arts. But for me, all of their rational reasons just were not enough of a reason for me not to pursue it because this is it's had been my dream as far back as I can remember. And then along with that was the cost of college tuition, which back then is, was so much cheaper than what it is today, but it was still a lot. I still had no idea. I, I didn't really know about the MGI bill until one day, my best friend at that time, we went to the mall because she the unemployment office was there in Tacoma and uh, she was looking for a job. And as we're walking out, this really beautiful man in an army uniform stops us and starts talking to us and and we're 18 and we're just smitten by his good looks and you know we want to talk to him and he was a recruiter who was like oh come in you know blah blah let me tell you all of your options and 
And when he presented, you know, the MGI bill and all these benefits of being in the military, it kind of blew both of our minds away. It was like, oh, why wouldn't we do this? What year is this? This was 2001. Oh, when in 2001? This is probably summertime, like August, I think. Wow. Before 9-11. Yeah. The world was very different. <laughs> wow. Okay. So he got us set up to take the ASVAB test, of course, with, and, oh, the other thing was he had been a reservist for 20 years and his thing was like, oh, join the reserves, use your MGI bill, do an MOS that you care about. And you'll own, for the MOS that I signed up for, um, you'll only be deployed for stateside deployments when there is a national emergency, because at that time, reserve units weren't being activated to be, to deploy overseas. Of course, the world was very, very different, right? And um, so there weren't a lot of like ethical issues around it. It was like, oh yeah, the military, like this is great for women to join and make your lives better. And so we did. So both of us signed up together. Then we did the test and we placed in our MOSs. The official contracts uh, didn't get signed until January of 2002. What did your family think of you enlisting in the army? I was already living in Seattle at that time. So I just called them up and told them that I was joining the army. I leave for basic training in February and I'll be gone for like, you know, basic training, then AIT. So I'll be gone for like the next six months and then I'll come back and um, start college. And what was their reaction? They were shocked. Sure. They had no idea like how to process. And again, this is also a time where we hadn't really gone to Iraq yet. So the world was still different. Right. Mm-hmm. And so for my mom, you know, her dad was in the military. So when India was, India was a British colony, um, her father served in the British army during World War II. And so in India, especially, the military is seen as a very um, honorable thing. And so for my mom, it was like, okay, even though no one, no women in our family had ever been in the military, the military still has such a high status. They didn't really think about the long-term impact of being in the military with the current wars. It was kind of like, okay, well, if they're giving you these benefits and you're doing this thing, you know, that's pretty, pretty amazing. I'm fascinated by your story so far because I can't imagine immigrating to another country and joining their military. In India, can women join the military? I think so, but I'm not 100% sure. (laughs) Aside from your grandfather, did you know anybody else in the military? No, no. Especially not in the American military. Well, this recruiter did his job. (laughs) (laughs) So what was your MOS? Uh, Preventive medicine. Uh, 91 Sierra. Um, I think they changed it now. It used to be 91 Sierra. But preventive medicine is basically public health of the military, So our job was to keep soldiers from getting sick. Um, So if you look at World War I, World War II, a lot of our war efforts were paralyzed because of the number of soldiers who would get sick on the battlefield from cholera, from other diseases. And so I think that's really when this department came into being. And so we were trained on epidemiology. We were trained on how to create clean water out of dirty water, you know. Just anything you can imagine um, that can impact a soldier's health, we were trained on all of those aspects. And it was our job to investigate anytime there was, you know, any kind of mass illness, teach hygiene classes, teach STD classes. It it was just a whole range of things. Like it's one of those MOSs that you would never get bored. And in cases of a hurricane or an earthquake or any kind of humanitarian uh, emergencies, it's actually everything that we were trained to do would be to serve people in need during during that time. 
So let me back you up a moment and take you to basic training because you shared a story with me (laughs) where you weren't really familiar with the format of basic training and they're in your face and they're breaking you down. And so I'll preface this with I had never seen any military movies. (laughs) I had no idea really what basic training was. I was like, oh, we'll just get in shape, you know? Great. So Yeah. So when the drill sergeants are yelling at you and um, you're being treated so awfully, um, I actually, my first week at basic training, I was just in shock. And I was like, this is not, they can't do this. We're American citizens. They can't treat us like this. I'm going to write a letter to Amnesty International (laughs) to tell them these are human rights violations. <laughs> 18 year old Sati, like not knowing. Um, and then, of course, I talked to the people I was with, and they had a great laugh and filled me in on how basic training goes. And then, once you, once you understand that, then you realize it's just a game. And I actually had a lot of fun in basic training. You had fun in basic training. I did. <laughs> In army basic training? I mean, you know, it was physically extremely challenging. I was not in shape at all, but it was the people I was with, you know, it's nine weeks. We were in Missouri and just like pushing yourself physically in that way. I'd never done that. And mentally this idea of teamwork and being trained to care about the other people and their welfare and that your actions have an impact on them. I think those are lessons that you can apply to how you live your life anyways. Well, I agree with you on that. Uh, So when you get to basic training, were there any other Indian women in your platoon? (laughs) No, not at all. But there were, uh, I mean, I was in a co-ed basic training and it was almost half women, half men. It was a lot of women of color, but I was the only Indian one. I mean, most people I met in basic training had never met an Indian person before. So they thought I was Mexican or some sort of a mix between a, a white and a black mix, right? So like people would be like, oh, you're Indian. What is like Native American, Indian from India? Like we've never met someone from there before. Like I was very quote unquote exotic in that way. Like they didn't know like what to make of me. And was your drill sergeant a man or a woman? We had male and female drill sergeants, which was pretty cool. But the main two people who oversaw us were men. But then we also had female drill sergeants who did like other other stuff. We had about yeah. 40 women my unit through basic training, 40 women, and our drill sergeant, well, our MTI, military training instructor, was a woman, which was really cool. And that woman did not put up with anything. So when we got the men, when sometimes, you know, they team up and we got men, it was almost like a little bit of a break because nobody was as tough as this woman. All right. So you graduate basic training and then where did you go? I did my AIT at Fort Sam Houston in Texas. How long was AIT? That was four months. And your first duty assignment? Back in Seattle. I uh, got into UW, University of Washington, and started going to school. As a reservist, you do one weekend a month. So it was usually the first weekend of every month that we would go drill. And then in the summertime, they would do two weeks of training somewhere. So where in your journey did 9-11 happen? So I was a freshman in college. And um, that's when I remember watching um, the news unfold while I was in my dorms. And then I went to basic AIT, came back towards like late 2002, came back to school. And then early next year, 2003, Iraq was invaded. Uh, We got our orders to deploy, but then those orders got canceled until I think almost two years after that, 
by the time I was graduating college, we got our orders a second time and then those didn't get canceled. And then I ended up becoming um, activated to go overseas. I remember in 0203, a lot of guard and reserve units were getting activated for the first time in decades and going to Iraq, Qatar and remote locations around there. And many of the guard and reservists were in their mid to late 50s. And they were virtually on their way to retirement, but detoured to the Middle East. What were your thoughts when you first received orders, then they were canceled, and then when you received orders that weren't canceled? Well, the first time it was really crazy, right? Like, because the first time we got orders, it was after we had learned that WMDs were a lie, mm-hmm. right? That this was all fabricated. And, you know, I was also in a college environment. So I started, I became more politically conscious. So in that way, it was really difficult to align my personal beliefs with being called to go to a war I didn't believe in. I had to leave my classes, got out of the lease on my apartment. I was ready to deploy. And then a week before our deployment got canceled. And so that's what you know, I had wanted was to get out of that deployment. So it was a a weird kind of like this, this thing happened and I felt safe in that, right? Of course, we didn't know that we were going to get activated again. And then the second time it happened, it was by then the Abu Ghraib, you know, all of those photos had come out. So that was also public knowledge. So like, it's like, it felt like every, as time passed, we kept learning how morally, ambiguous this conflict has been and how our involvement wasn't necessarily, it just became much more complicated to personally align yourself with your mission, even though my my mission was to keep the soldiers from getting sick, right? So it was like, okay, so I'm going there for this part. And that is, you know, of course, like our troops, these are mothers and fathers, a lot of single parents who are deploying, like they deserve that, you know, deserve that kind of care. And at that time I was 20, because I turned 21 right before I left. So for a 20 year old, I think you're just so confused, you know, like you just don't know. There's so much you don't know, right? Like I couldn't legally drink in the country, but I was about to get deployed to go overseas. When you deployed, how many women were in your unit? Uh, So we were a really small unit. I think there were 10 or 11 of us total. And again, it was half women, half men. And um, our commander was female, which was really cool. Um, So our reserve unit, when it got activated, the commander was an active duty commander and she was attached to our unit to take us to Iraq. So she wasn't somebody that we knew before. So she joined our unit and led us into war. <laughs> she was she was phenomenal. She was such a no-nonsense, very focused, very clear about her expectations and what she wanted us to accomplish during our time there. She was, and, and you know, the funny thing is like, I don't think I realized at that time how special that was. Because mm-hmm. I think I was surrounded by women and I saw women as drills are and I just didn't understand like the institutional disparity in representation of females within the military. So like to me, it was just seemed so normal that we had a female commander. It wasn't until I left the military that I realized like that was a very unique experience. One of my commanders at the hospital was a full Colonel 06, wow. a flight doctor. She was amazing. I looked up to her so much. I had so much respect for her. And she just, she was firm, but fair and a great listener and really took into consideration different people's ideas, even down to me as someone who is very low on the rung. You felt like you were being heard. So where specifically were your orders to? So we went to Texas first, El Paso. Um, we were we got trained there for about two months. And then we went to Kuwait. And we were in Kuwait for about a month. And from there, we flew into Baghdad. 
And then we were on the ground for a year. Our orders were for like 500 plus days, but we were really in Iraq just for one year. And um, then came back to Kuwait and then came back to Texas and then came back to Washington. And what did your family think? Uh, I mean, they were really upset and really afraid, right? Like they didn't really know how to process this. You know, at that time in the Sikh Indian community here, um, they weren't really other people like me who had joined. So they really didn't have any friends who could understand what they were going through. Who shared that. Um, today, there's a lot more Sikh Americans and a lot more Indian Americans who are part of the military. So, so it, things have changed a lot. But back in 2003, or when I deployed, actually in 2005, that wasn't the case. So they were very alone in their grief. Yeah, I don't think Facebook was around at that time. I think that might have been the MySpace days. Yeah, it was in MySpace days. Uh, I, Facebook really started in 2007 because I remember coming back from the war and like making a Facebook account. <laughs> yeah, I held out until 2009 and then I broke down and did the Facebook thing. But there are all these support groups online now. You can connect with anyone and have a support system. I was discussing this with the vet on another episode and how great these services are because when I was stationed at Ramstein from 01 to 03, I worked in the medical field and saw casualties of roadside bombs and combat, and they had really awful injuries, and a lot of them required amputation. And there were only a handful of programs, and you know nobody could have anticipated what services would be needed back then. Wounded warriors wasn't a thing yet, so people were searching on blogs, which was still pretty new at the time, blogging, and they were just searching for information and answers. And I remember feeling uncertain about everything because Everything was escalating so quickly, right? The military was on a stop loss. We had Americans who were POWs. Reporters were embedded with Marines. Rumors were all over the internet. And there were anthrax scares and civilians being beheaded. And Germans were picketing outside the gate. CNN was reporting from Ramstein. It was intense. And I had friends who had orders for 90 days, then 120, then 365, and then got pushed indefinitely And you just knew everything was going to get worse before it got better. At the time, I was number one on the laboratory deployment team. and I had orders to Baghdad City to set up a MASH unit. But shortly before we were to head out, those orders got canceled and they sent a guard unit instead. And I was conflicted about deploying, but like you being in the medical field and seeing these casualties coming back, I felt like my mission was humanitarian and I'd be providing care, and I could get behind that. Um, I also come from a military family, and at the time, my dad was active duty Army, so my family understood how the military functioned and what services were available to them because of their military affiliation. But we've been at war now for 17-plus years, and there's countless services available, which is really wonderful. Back to your story. (laughs) You were deployed for a year, you came back, and how long was your military service at that point? Um, I came back in 2000, uh, November 2006, because I moved to LA 2007. So by 2006, um, I had been in for four years. So going to war, then coming back to the States, did that have an impact on pursuing your dream to be a filmmaker? For sure. Um, So actually, before I got deployed, I had applied to film schools. 
And I got rejected from every place I applied to except USC. I got in for some reason. Um, I couldn't go because I got my deployment orders. And so I had to defer that. So when I came back, I had a very clear plan of like returning home and moving to LA and starting USC, which was great to go from one extremely intense environment to another extremely intense environment, which is grad school. (laughs) All right. You've got the GI Bill. You've got stories to share and a drive more than ever, I'm sure. For sure. I I definitely had stories to tell. Um, Although when I first uh, started uh, USC, I wouldn't really tell people that I was in the military or that, you know, that I had just come back from Iraq because I came back in November and I started school in January. And I, I wouldn't tell people that just because I was still processing my own experience in the war. And I felt very deeply conflicted about it at that time. I just didn't know how to tell people because I wasn't I didn't want them to think of me a certain way because I was in the military, you know, because I was part of this war, this particular war. Mm-hmm. So that took me a long time to get comfortable saying out loud that I was a veteran. And then along with that, even the people that I would initially tell that I'm a veteran, I just came back from the war well, actually, I didn't use the term veteran at the time because I was still in the military, but but that I was a soldier and, you know, people just wouldn't believe me. They'd just be like, they'd be so confused. Like they'd look at my face and try to think maybe I was talking about somebody else and they just misunderstood me because, you know, women veterans were not, you know, are not visible. Even today, people don't, you know, has that been your experience, Melissa? Absolutely. It's the reason why I wanted to start this podcast. And again, When I got out in 03, and we've been at war for over 17 years, and women have been serving all that time, I still get the whole, you don't look like a veteran thing. And like you, when I got out, I was processing everything from the medical field at Ramstein, which was actually a safe place. But I moved to Las Vegas because I wanted something completely different from the environment I was in. And like you, I wanted to pursue the arts. And with the GI Bill, I was able to make that happen. So... I attended UNLV. They had a dance department and a theater department, but I know the war wasn't popular. So uh, I also didn't tell many people that I had been in the military. And if I did tell them, it's exactly what you said. They thought they misheard me. They thought my husband was in, even though I wasn't married. Got the comments like, I've never seen a girl like you in the military. Yeah. Uh, Or it's like, oh, you must have been in an office because women, you know, women don't carry weapons. And I'm like, no, I had a weapon that was assigned to me that I carried. I was shot at. These things happen. Like, but people can't wrap their head around that. Right. And, And I think at that time, you know, the official status in the military was that women are not allowed are not to be in combat. Right. That was our official policy. Even though with urban warfare, um, there is not, not necessarily a front line. And so you are getting shot at if you're in uniform, like you're a target. No one cares if you're a woman or a man. But people didn't have that understanding here. I also found it baffling coming back here and seeing how the general public did not even care that there was a war going on. Like it was just this thing on the side and everybody's lives were consumed by, I think at that time, reality TV and just It was just shocking to see that disconnect, you know, from having lived the war like every day for a year to coming back here and seeing that it's not in people's consciousness whatsoever. And that was really strange to process. And I didn't have really anybody at the time that I could talk to about this because I moved to L.A. So I didn't have my friends close by and I made new friends in the program. But it was such an intense program and I just didn't know how to talk about any of this. I didn't even understand what PTSD was at that time because it wasn't talked about. 
you know, today it's part of our culture and we were much more open about therapy. But back then there was huge stigma attached to therapy. In fact, when we came back from the war, our unit, when we were out processing in Texas, they told us not to write anything on our paperwork that would keep us there longer. So like when it comes to any mental health issues or any, you know, any experiences, like just minimize what you write on the papers so that they don't investigate further and thereby delay your unit coming home. And so it, it, it is what it was, I guess. <laughs> I'm glad that we're having this conversation and I'm really grateful that you're honoring our experiences and our voices. And I don't feel like I've really done this before. Um, talk so openly about my experiences. I mean, women have been more involved in this 17-year-plus war, and we don't hear about women's stories. So I'm excited for you as a filmmaker and a director and a wartime veteran that one day our voices and experiences will find the spotlight. So you graduate from USC, and then what was your plan? I had no idea. I was very lost. Mm -hmm. I wanted to make films, but no one will hire you or give you money to make a film. <laughs> um, I really, uh, you know, it was clear to me that I wanted to direct. But if you really want to, you know, work in Hollywood, you really have to make your own indie features and break in, especially back then. Like now you can do webisodes, you can do, now there's a lot more ways to create content that can be consumed by, you know, your followers. But back then, this is before Instagram, before all these things. So I knew I had to make a feature, but I wasn't sure. I think when you've gone through life with so many big changes and you get to a point because it, it was go, 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 right? Like it was undergrad, um, Iraq, USC. And then once I finished that, it was just kind of like, there was nothing else that was waiting for me that I could just lose myself in. Like I had to make decisions about my life. And it was really difficult because there, I think there was just so much trauma that hadn't been processed. And, and in many ways, I had no idea who I was. Like, I didn't know what I wanted to say about the world. I, I really struggled with that. And um, I left LA, I moved in with my brother because I couldn't find a job. And, and he was so amazing. Um, he supported me during those months. And I kind of went back to figuring out like, what is the next step for me? And I, I realized what I wanted to do was I wanted to go to India and um, meet my family and interview them about the violence that was happening there, that happened there during my childhood that we never really processed. And so I decided to make a film about that. And in the process of that, I met these amazing people and I got a full-time job doing interviews with survivors of police brutality and torture and families who, whose loved ones were disappeared in the state of Punjab that the Indian government still denies that this happened. So there's an organization in the Bay Area called INSAF and I started collaborating with them and traveling throughout the state of Punjab, meeting survivors of violence and interviewing them. And it was the most intense and rewarding experience of my life because it kind of really helped me understand who I was and where I came from. And I was able to actually like reignite my relationship with my cousins and my family in India and spend time with my grandfather who was still alive back then. Is that your mom's father? Asking for the military connection. Oh, uh, yeah. No, he wasn't in the military, but he was a um, freedom fighter in India and he fought against the British. So it's kind of interesting. My mom's father was in the military for the British and my dad's father was, you know, fighting against the British and spent a lot of his um, earlier years in jails um, in the Free India Movement. Your short film, The Last Killing, is that influenced by that experience? 
The Last Killing is a short documentary about a ex-cop in Punjab who becomes a whistleblower to his uh, police department's um, extrajudicial killings in Punjab. So he witnessed, I think, 12 to 20 young men being killed by his fellow police officers. The, the numbers range because there's documentation for some of it and evidence for some of it, but not for all of it. And as a result, when he started speaking up about it, the police went after him. They abducted his father, tortured his father who died from that. And so he was on the run for a long time. Then things changed in India a little bit. But when I was filming him, his case was pending in in Punjab's um, high court. And during the duration of our filming, the court actually delivered a decision, which was to dismiss his case entirely, even though there was so much evidence against these police officers But a a lot like how it is in the U.S., it's really hard to convict police officers. Even if there's evidence, it's it's very hard to do that, even even over there. It's very similar to here. Did you fear for your own safety at that time? Um, Yes and no. I mean, there were times we were definitely paranoid that we were being followed. And um, we always had a plan in place to get us out of the country in case something happened. And I think the human rights workers who were working on the ground who were from Punjab, they were always at the risk of more harassment and danger than I think I was. I was a U.S. passport holder. So for me, I think the consequences would have been not as severe if I was to get caught. But I always went there on a tourist visa because the government wouldn't give you a visa to do this kind of documentation. I mean, they've kicked out so many journalists from like Amnesty International and other places where when they find out that this is the work you're doing, they'll blacklist you. So you can never go back to India to do the work. Wow. Wow. Have you been back to India since? I have. Yeah. I have not been blacklisted. Maybe once they hear this podcast and they know who I am. (laughs) No, no, no. But you continue to grow as an artist and a filmmaker. Your films include Arresting God and Blood and Glory, which premiered online with the Tribeca Film Festival. And it won the grand prize at the Women in Media's Camaraderie Initiative. Arresting God is a short film? No, so Arresting God is a feature, and that's uh, only a script. So I wrote that script, and we're um, going to go go find funding and put that together over the next year or so. The short film, Blood and Glory, is somewhat connected to Arresting God, but not entirely. And it's about the friendship between two female veterans who are homeless now and living on the streets of L.A., and it follows one day in their lives and all the obstacles they encountered. The reason I wanted to make that, actually the interesting thing is that script, I wrote it in USVA, the the US Veterans Artist Alliance program. And I workshopped it in that program, which was really cool. I wrote it because I used to volunteer on Skid Row back in the days. Mm -hmm. And one time I saw this woman walk by me and she had her army dog tags on and her combat boots. And I could tell that she was military, you know, for most people, they would just think this was a woman. But, you know, I think at, we're, we're trained to see see these markers of, you know, like where you come from. And as she walked past me, like I couldn't really say hi to her or hello to her. I was I just saw her and she clearly looked homeless. But when she walked past me, I saw a huge period stain on her back. And that just kind of froze me. Like I didn't know how to process that image. And so that made me go write a draft, which was very different than what eventually became the film. And I remember workshopping that script at USVA with a lot of male veterans. And we're talking about periods and blood. And I thought for sure they were going to be so disgusted, but everybody received it so warmly and 
they're, you know, these are like Marines, even who are like, oh, we've never thought about women, you know, these issues that women face, uh, female veterans, especially when it comes to homelessness. And I think right now there's probably around 50,000 women veterans that are facing homelessness, even though there are a lot of programs out there that are trying to help. But I think because for a long time, the programs were always geared towards men. A lot of these programs, when you transition from the military to civilian life, but now because we have more and more women joining the military in these new wars, and um, and then when they leave the military, their needs are very different than the men. Female veterans today still have a harder time finding employment, and they struggle with homelessness at a higher rate than their male counterparts. And so this is really work that I feel responsible, like I want to work towards this, you know? And so we made the film and we're hoping to use it for advocacy with various organizations to raise awareness and to make people see like, what do women veterans look like? Who are we? What are some of the, our challenges? And, and the cool thing about the film, Jo Marla, our lead actress, she herself is a Navy veteran. Mm-hmm. And that was really like important to us to cast a veteran in that role. If we want to watch Blood and Glory, how do we go about that? So we're doing the festival circuit. So we're, we've been playing at all these festivals. Uh, we were set to premiere at Tribeca, but Tribeca got canceled because of COVID. Um, they've invited us to screen the film there next year in their 2021 block. Okay. So we're excited about that. We played at Indie Shorts. We played at an amazing festival here in Bellingham. We've we've just been playing all around the world. Actually, this weekend, we're also in Ireland. If anybody wants to watch Blood and Glory, just shoot me a message and I'm happy to share the link. My Instagram is Sati Films. And there's even more good news to share because by the time this podcast launches, you'll be able to share that. I uh, got into the Universal uh, writing program. It was a very lengthy process. I went to a lot of interviews and we had to pitch. It was very nerve wracking. And at no point did I know that I would I would make it this far. But it's really exciting. I get to write for one year for Universal and really learn how the studio system works and how they develop their projects. It wouldn't have happened, I think, if I hadn't made Blood and Glory and the amazing, uh, there's an organization called Women in Media. Blood and Glory as a script was selected as a finalist in one of their initiatives. So they gave us the resources to make the film. And part of that was also mentorship by Colin Trevorrow, who is, you know, writer director of Jurassic World and many other films. And so having all these people support Blood and Glory and help make it what it was, what it is, I think really helped me get into the Universal program as well, because they saw all that on my resume and on my in my personal essay. I'm so proud of you. You created this opportunity by hustling and staying active. And it's encouraging to see your friends succeed because as an artist, there's always going to be obstacles along the way. And come on. You went to war. I mean, that's an obstacle. The one thing that war makes clear is like, well, the reality is we're all going to die one way or another. So like, while you're here, live the life you want to live. Create that life, right? Like, uh, you have no excuse not to do that. Oh, 100%. I think back to when I was an airman in the lab and I was processing hundreds of urine samples a day thinking, this cannot be my life. I mean, it's a risk to pursue your dreams, especially in the creative world, but I've come too far to give up now. And like you, I want to have an exciting life and meet interesting people and collaborate with creative minds. So in a way, I now have the best of both worlds because I'm involved with the veteran community in LA and I'm pursuing a creative career. I'm an assistant to an agent so I can slowly see these doors starting to open and it keeps you going. 
All right. The question I'm going to ask all my lady vets, if a young woman came up to you today and said she's thinking about joining the military, what would you say? (laughs) No, (laughs) don't ask me that. It's such a hard question to answer. I think it's different for everybody. Like I understand why a lot of people join the military because it does give you economic stability mm-hmm. and security. Like you can retire after 20 years, you know, all of those benefits are wonderful. And a lot of times the communities that you come from, you don't have any other way to provide for your family. So I completely understand that and respect that. And I'm not the person to tell them you should join or not join. I think that's something they have to think about. But I would say this, like, how do you reconcile your duty to serve your country with your moral compass that, at times what your country is doing doesn't feel just or right, or you just can't find, you know, like I think the conflicts that we're in today are not as clear as World War One or Two, right? So everything is a lot more grayer. So depending on how comfortable you are um, being part of an institution that's that might send you to a conflict that you don't believe in, you know, like I think it's, it's I guess it comes down to your own political consciousness. It's a... I think it's a very personal question. You know, I think there's no easy answers. The military service has made me who I am. I wouldn't be the person I am. So it's hard to say that if I had to do it again, would I do it again? Like, I think I would because I I don't know who I would be if I wasn't this person. And I'm glad I got to witness the things I did because I get to tell stories about them and bring a perspective that we wouldn't have otherwise. But at the same time, telling a young person to be like, join the military, it's really hard for me to say that. I wouldn't judge them either if they did but if, if it was my own family member I would say no don't do it mm-hmm. I, <laughs> you know how about you how do you feel about it personally I'm glad I did it but I'm glad I got out and the people I met and the experiences I had I'm really grateful for the benefit now is that you can really research online what's available and what the services mean really study why you're going in study for your ASFAB I would I would lean towards yes but know what you're getting yourself into yeah 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 no I, I yeah I see that and don't don't sign an eight-year contract sign the four-year one. <laughs> oh right I was offered four or six years and if you signed up for six years you went in as an e3 which is a little bit of a pay bump and then you get a little bit of rank start <laughs> off with four years well we have covered a lot Sati thank you for sharing your story Thank you for having me here. This is so cool. It's so crazy to reflect on our experiences. And it's like, you know, it's, it's such a complex thing, right? I think and that's how life is. And thank you for tuning in. If you're a female veteran and would like to be unserved, email me at myservedpodcast at gmail.com. If you're a veteran in crisis or concerned about one, contact the Veterans Crisis Line at 800 273 8255, option one, or visit veteranscrisisline.net. Confidential support is available 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year.